0: Welcome back to the modern cop podcast Uh, coming to you this fun Sunday uh, morning slash afternoon uh, with Glenn topping. Glenn is a uh, retired sheriff sergeant, uh, retired military police officer and uh, author of four books, but he's got a couple more on the way. We are going to, uh, to talk about that and more on today's episode. Glenn, thank you for joining me, sir
1: thank you for having me today
0: and uh before we dive into it i want to give a shout out to today's sponsors mike loop and door jam Uh, both are pieces of equipment that i keep with me on a daily basis even as a detective Um, certainly, uh, uh, if you're out, uh, in patrol, uh, you need to get those, uh, you need to get your hands on those items. Door jam is the most versatile, uh, door tool on the market. And, uh, the mic loop keeps your mic where you need it to be when you need it to be there. Uh, plenty of, uh, attestations on, uh, both websites about just how great each of those products are. So big shout out to Mic loop and door jam, find them on Amazon, Instagram, and uh, the good old internet. Uh, all right. Well, Glenn, I uh, just before we started, I, I gave you a little bit of a heads up on that uh, that icebreaker question. So let's dive right into that. You can have a drink with anybody, living or dead. Who is it and what are you drinking?
1: Well, it would be kind of interesting having, having a drink with somebody who's dead. But I think I'd like to sit down with President Donald Trump.
0: What do you think... Uh, what do you think he drinks? Yeah, I feel like he's a gin and tonic man. Uh, well,
1: if he drank, if he doesn't drink, um, it could be uh, some kind of probably some kind of a good old fashioned whiskey.
0: I like it. That is my uh, my drink of choice. Do you have a particular whiskey that you enjoy drinking?
1: Actually, I don't.
0: I don't uh, really like you know that type of alcohol. I like to have a beer once in a while, like a Heineken. Oh, there you go. All right, hi, hi. you can't go wrong with the uh, with a Heineken, we can uh, we can make a little Heineken commercial there um, on uh, on this episode. Um, now, Glenn, I'm gonna uh, just to kind of give folks an idea uh, of what we're gonna be talking today. Uh, you did send me the uh, the cover art for one of your latest books coming out, "The Making of a Monster," from a bullied yeah. little kid to a notorious thrill killer. And on the uh, the back cover is a little bit of a bio on you. You spent 25 years. Uh, with a sheriff's office in South Florida. You uh, you were a sergeant uh, during your time there. You were a patrol and field force supervisor, a tactics instructor, hostage negotiator, organized crime detective. You worked narcotics interdiction at uh, the local airport and bus terminal down there. And uh, uh, interestingly, you were on the first season of Cops back in 1989. Um, and prior to all of that, though, uh, you were a military police sergeant stationed in uh, Germany during the Cold War. What was it, Glenn? Let's let's go back to to childhood, Glenn. What is it that took you into this life of service?
1: Well, when I was growing up in New York in the 60s, um, I grew up watching all the old cop shows on TV, and I was always drawn to those. They always looked very exciting, a lot of fun, uh, a lot of crazy chases through the streets, and where I lived, there was a lot of uh, local NYPD guys used to hang out all the time. You used to go up and talk with them about their job and what it entails. And I think, you know, maybe I tell them, maybe sometime as I get old, I'd be like to get into law enforcement. And they always say, yeah, it's a good kid job. You know, that's a good job, kid. You go for it. <laughs> so as I got older uh, and I got to the age of uh, military age, I signed up with the Army and and went to the uh, MP school in Fort Gordon, Georgia, and I became a military policeman, eventually made sergeant, and got stationed in Germany for four years.
0: And what was it like being stationed? Where in Germany were you stationed? Were you, you know, Berlin, Checkpoint Charlie, or were you you elsewhere in the country?
1: I was stationed in Nuremberg, Germany, uh, but I did a week's tour of duty at Checkpoint Charlie when the wall was still up.
0: And what was it like working in uh, West Germany during during the the Cold War? I mean it's a it's a time that uh, so much of the world today uh is a result of what happened uh post World War II on up until really the the end of the Cold War signified by the Berlin Wall being uh you know being toppled um the that famous footage of of the East German, uh, I don't know if they were Stasi or whoever, but they walked through the gap in the wall, shook hands with the guys over on West German side. Tell us, right. uh, tell us a little bit about uh, about what uh, what your experiences were uh, in in Germany.
1: Well, my first uh, first year over there, I was working in the stockade, which is a pretrial detention facility uh, for the GIs that were facing trials and uh, court martials and being sent back to the states. Uh, about a year in, I took the sergeant's test and I uh, got promoted and got sent to a patrol, a road patrol unit in Germ- in Nuremberg. And, uh, it was patrol sergeant, like basically what they do here in the civilian, life, in the civilian world. Uh, and then I had an opportunity to go to, uh, East Germany where the wall was and look at that, you know, famous spot where you see the East Germans on one side and we're on the other side. It's kind of, staring each other down and just think that a little piece of concrete is separating the worlds. It's kind of weird.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You've got, uh, you've got like a 12 foot tall, uh, as you said, just, it's just piece of concrete and, and it's separating these two massively different ideas and it's, it's a symbolic of the only thing keeping the cold war from, from going hot. Right. Um, was there, um, in that time, were there uh, uh, any like any crazy uh, concerns or, or um, you know happenings going on, or, or did you find your time to be as far as the threat of nuclear war can be? Did you find it to be fairly tame?
1: No, it was very tame. There was no well, well, obviously there anyway. there was no major things going on. We just you know patrolled our section of the wall as the East Germans did theirs, and uh, everything was smooth. I did my week there and I went back to my base in Nuremberg.
0: And, uh, and after you get back to, uh, your base in Nuremberg, um, ultimately how many years did you, uh, did you spend in the army?
1: I did about five years, uh, about four years total in Germany.
0: Um, yeah, that was in the early, late seventies. And then, uh, as your military career is, is coming to an end, uh, what were your considerations? Did you know that you were going to go into the world of law enforcement or, or were you just trying to kind of figure out, okay, hey, what, what's next?
1: Well, I, I had a pretty good idea that I was going to go into civilian law enforcement. I just didn't know when. I waited actually many years before I decided to get in. Um, when I started here in in Florida, I was with a small department, uh, and I was, I was 30 years old when I started as compared to the and 21-year-olds that were in the academy with me. But it was a late start, but I was glad I did it. Uh, I started off with the reserve program, uh, doing a lot of time as a reserve officer, and then I went full-time. I went to the full-time of police academy, and I got certified and went full-time. And I was working with a local police department, which a few years later, they merged with the sheriff's office. They got annexed
0: and became deputy sheriffs that were retired. And in your decision to to go into law enforcement, was there a consideration of going back to New York uh and, and working towards NYPD or were you saying, Nope, sunny Florida for me?
1: Uh, it was sunny Florida for me. No, <laughs> for me uh, I, and actually
0: by now I'd love to get out of Florida. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> I uh, I've never worked in an extremely cold environment. I mean, I work in uh, in here in central Arizona and the coldest it gets at night, you know, having work nights, it gets down into the, I don't know, the thirties generally on a rare, rare night. You'll get down into the twenties. I was, I was talking to a former NYPD, NYPD detective who'd said that your, uh, your patrol Sergeant would come around and uh, he'd, he'd roll up to you in his car and you're on a walking beat in the middle of the night in a snowstorm. And uh, oh, yeah. he'd, he'd want to feel the badge pinned to your coat. Cause if the badge wasn't frozen then he knew you'd been slacking off, hanging out in the in the coffee shop as opposed to walking your beat, and that sounds just like abject misery to me. That's not anything that uh, that I I wanted to get into. Um, but uh, uh, in those those years between the army and uh, uh, and law enforcement, what uh, what you know, what did you uh, end up doing in those in in that timeframe there?
1: Well, I did a lot of security work. I kind of stayed in the field of like pseudo law enforcement. I was a store detective in a couple of places uh, in New York. And then when I came down to Florida, I did the same thing. I worked in the hotels in the security department or, or the a detective of the hotel. And um, I did that for many years, actually. I became a store detective for a while. And then it was time to make the move. And that's what I did.
0: And uh, what was it like going through uh, going through the academy there? Um, you know, in uh, uh, was it was it the 70s, the 80s? Uh, I mean, you said you were you were 30 years old in with those 19, 20 year olds. Talk about your academy experience, having so much more life experience than really anybody else in your academy class.
1: Well, it was in the early 80s. Uh, first, I had to go when I was a reserve officer. I had to go to the reserve academy, which is about 200 hours. And then it seemed like a couple months later the the city I was working with uh made me ask me if I wanted to go full time. And of course I said yes, I had to go to the regular police academy, which was another seven hundred hours of academy. And uh when I was in there, uh right away, you know, they find out you're an ex military guy. Uh so it made me a like a company commander of their of our shift or squad. And uh I got through it and I stayed in fairly good shape and I was able to uh, you know Go up against the younger guys during the obstacle course and the running and all lot of the good stuff that went with it and it was finally a graduation time it was a good good day to get out of there
0: yeah yeah i I was just talking to uh, somebody uh, a couple days ago about the the thought of going to a second police academy um I mean I've talked to plenty of guys locally uh just just as I've met people in in my you know short six years in policing. Uh, where you talk to talk to officers who, you know, they're local cops and they decide to go fed or they're fed, they decide to go local uh, or they, they were a cop and then they got out for a period of time and their certs expired. They had to go back through academy. And for, for the vast majority of my time thus far, I've always said, no, hell no, I'm not going to go through another police academy. But then I was, uh, somebody brought up a very good point that you're, you're getting paid to be fairly safe uh, and to work out all the time. And basically, I mean, nowadays it's it's uh, heavy on the education side as well. And I thought, you know, that's I hadn't really considered that that uh, you are getting paid for out here. It's five or six months of uh, of academy time. So I uh, ha-
1: and I, went to three,
0: I went to three academies
1: between the military basic training and then the two police academies.
0: Well, that yeah, and and that right there, I mean, should should showcase your dedication to being okay <laughs> with going through the academy. I am curious though if you don't mind sharing. Because uh, I always think it's interesting. Now, I mean, uh, you know, accounting for inflation being what it is, but what was, if you remember, what was your starting salary in the in the academy when you went full time? Boy, it was probably around shoot uh, per hour.
1: Yeah, uh, maybe around eleven, eleven and change.
0: Eleven and change per hour, which was probably not that bad for the '80s. You know, all things considered, what you weren't making millions and millions of dollars, but. Uh, yeah uh, you know, 11 and some change per hour. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. I, yeah, I do, they uh, they join now to get bonuses They're making, uh, you know, starting off at 60, 70, 000 a year up bad. Yeah. sixty-seven thousand, sixty 60 or 70,000 a year with a $15,000 signing bonus. And, uh, we're going to, here's all your uniforms and here's money for your boots and which is things that I, I wholeheartedly agree with. I think that those should be, uh, provided to officers. Um, uh, I was uh, again similar conversation just the other day of, you know, we we're continuing uh, as police departments uh, and sheriffs, to, basically as law enforcement agencies, were throwing money at people in an attempt to recruit them. Um, yeah. But uh, uh, I mean, you you've watched, you you've got a very like a what I would call a strategic perspective of policing because you've you've seen it and been in it for so long. Yeah, with what you with what you see now, and and the cops that are that that maybe you you talk to and interact with nowadays, uh, I'm of the impression that uh, recruiting nowadays, you you can throw all the money in the world at people, but there are some people that just there. I shouldn't say there are some. There are fewer and fewer people wanting to to do this job. But with yours, with your really your vast perspective uh, looking back over the, the last few decades of policing is, is this a cyclical event? Does, is this something that ebbs and flows or are we in an extremely difficult time as police officers? Is this something that's, that's unique?
1: I think it's probably cyclical, but it's also unique because you have all these um, anti-police people in government they want to defund the cops. They want to defund everybody, except they want their own personal security. Right. Uh, but I think the time is going on. More and more are seeing now, they're seeing the light that, hey, defunding is not really a good idea. Look at our crime rate we're having in the country. Maybe we need more guys on the street, not less. Right, right. The, the people I talk to today, the the deputies that I still know, um, they to a point, they can't wait to get out because they're so tired of all the BS that's going on between the administration and the government. In the local governments. Uh, luckily, down here in Florida, uh, we have a great governor that's very pro-police, and you know, most of the most of the, the city and local governments are down here. So, other than that, uh, I think eventually it will come around to where they really go, "Hey, you know, we were wrong. Look at all the crime. We're supposed to be watching out for our citizens. Uh, maybe we need to hire a lot more guys to work the streets." And I think you'll see that as time kind of goes
0: around. Well, and and I I mean, I I certainly hope so that it is just—it's just just part of the the cycle of society, right? That that we have really good times. Um, You know, you think like post nine eleven. I mean, more and more and more people are becoming police officers, and now we're at an interesting point where we've got this anti police rhetoric that's been going on for almost almost 10 years now. I mean, really, I'm thinking back to to 2014 in Ferguson, Missouri. But um, uh, with with the people that came in shortly after 9-11 getting to the point of retirement, you have agencies looking and going, oh, crap, we've got, you know, 60% of our staff can retire at any point in time, and we can't seem to backfill those positions. So I, I think that's what almost makes it a little bit more stressful but i'm inclined to agree with you even even though i have a, a fairly narrow perspective time wise um that uh that things will, will will change i mean my dad can remember uh, he was riding with me one night and uh <laughs> talking talking with uh with some guys and and he can remember the you know watts riots from the late 60s and and then it was it was okay again and and you know and then the the '90s came through um, the the early '90s again. Th- thinking of California perspective, uh, which is where he's from, uh, but it seems like every you know twenty-ish years uh, times get tough uh, as as a cop, and then it it ends up more or less circling back around and, and kind of the ship the ship rights itself. It, it, I would, I think is what I'm trying to get at.
1: And you brought up Ferguson because you know that Ferguson effect is still alive in a well today.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, it's very
1: unfortunate. It did not have to be that way,
0: right? Right, and that, that Ferguson effect for those of you who, who may not be uh, in in law enforcement or um, unfamiliar with that, it's it's this phenomenon where you've got officers uh, perhaps failing to make decisions uh, or, or you know critical decisions at critical times uh, because the first thing that's on their mind isn't necessarily handling the situation that they that they've been presented with what's on their mind is what might the aftermath be. And, and I got, I mean, I've fallen victim to a man where you're looking at something and at a situation and you could just go, yeah, no, I don't, this is not going to be worth it if this goes uh, sideways on me, but we still have a job to do. We still have to, uh, we still have to be cops. Um, You can, you can do your job without violating, uh, you know, people's rights willy nilly. But the, the, you know, American society is still, truly still counting on police officers to step up and, and, uh, oh, yeah, of course. and do the right thing. Um, but, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, I was, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. Go ahead.
1: Now the thing that, you know, when I was coming up through policing, you didn't have cameras, you didn't have the cell phone camera, you didn't have body cams. Uh, you know, now today, as soon as you get out of your car, you got 20 people videoing you hoping you do something wrong so they can get it on, on Facebook.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've ended up on YouTube, uh, <laughs> unintentionally I was just in the background I wasn't the subject of the video on YouTube but I I uh I was a little bit disappointed to find out because when I started my career I've never known a career without a body camera I was uh well, it was like uh you know you get got done in the academy and uh you know uh, reported to uh to the headquarters the the following Monday and it's like cool here's this here's this here's your body camera here's your radio don't lose either of these things All right. Well here's here's your instructions on your body camera and my body camera now is just an extension of me. But, uh, when I started my career, I said, okay, I got, I got two rules. Number one, go home. Number two, don't end up on YouTube. And I've uh, unfortunately, I've had to break rule number two and I've ended up on YouTube and Facebook and all that good stuff. Um, but it is, it is an interesting environment to, uh, to police in. But you know, if we think about, uh, the camera stuff specifically, Let's let's visit to the uh, you being on the first season of of Cops. What was that like? You know, how how did that all happen?
1: Okay, well, in 1989, the show came out. Uh, I was on the road. My chief calls me in, and there's a guy in a suit in his office. I'm thinking like, uh-oh, what did I do? So he goes, "This is Mr. So and So. He's a producer with this TV show called Cops." And I go, "What's that?" They go, well, they, they ride around, they film you during the shift, and that's the TV show. I said, that sounds pretty cool. They said, do you want to be part of it? I go, yeah, why not? So I go, okay, so uh, what do I have to do? He goes, well, just do your job. <laughs> the cameraman will be in the car with you with their sound guy, and they'll just film you as you go on your calls. They have They won't get involved in anything you get involved with. They'll just film it. I said, okay. So I got picked because uh, I was fairly one of his more aggressive guys on the road. So the next couple of days I met with the crew and uh, they wrote a thing on the shift and they wrote for about about a week on and off getting the filming. And then a couple of weeks later, you saw yourself on the episode.
0: And did you have people uh, uh, calling you or, or getting a hold of you and, hey, did I just see you on Cops? Oh, yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, a couple of issues we had uh, on certain calls I got I was at our service center one afternoon having my car repaired and one of the colonels was there and luckily he liked me and he calls me over and he kind of puts me in like a headlock and he goes uh, hey Glenn I saw you on cops I was in Ireland and I saw you on cops and uh, we don't take people to Fort Lauderdale <laughs> I go uh oh he thought the episode." And so we had picked up a, a a hobo basically, and I said that we're going to bring him back to full orderly where he came from, and it kind of you know didn't look good on TV. I guess.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I I can't imagine what the response might be nowadays. I mean, co- cops is, uh, they were off air briefly, and in, in response to to uh george floyd in 2020 but but they've uh they've come back now but i have to imagine now it's it's hey guys the the people from cops are here they're going to be in your car with you please don't do anything uh don't do this <laughs> don't do this don't do th- <laughs> instead of yeah. instead of finding the uh the hard chargers they're gonna stick him with the guy who's like yeah i like to patrol this parking lot for five hours
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they don't like bad press anymore.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> nobody, nobody wants a uh, uh, bad press anymore. Uh, that's, that's for sure. Um, in your, in your time in the sheriff's office, how much time do, uh, were you, uh, were you a deputy? Uh, I think what I'm trying to get as how many years were yep. you on before you became, uh, before you decided to test for Sergeant?
1: I was on about, uh, about three and a half years. Uh, when I, was, I took the, when the test funding got came up, came up and I had to wait another about six or eight months. I, pa- I passed the test. I think i got number six on the, on the list. Uh, but I had to wait like another six or eight months before the opening
0: popped up and I got promoted in my last 20 years. I was patrol sergeant. And in, in your 20 years as patrol sergeant and, and I mean, really your, your whole 25 year, uh, career, um, Were there were there moments that uh, that uh, that that tested you and challenged you as as a leader? And and what what might you tell? You you go, go back, you know, go back in time. What do you tell Glenn then, you know, new newly promoted Sergeant Glenn and 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 indeed newly promoted sergeants now are people that are that are looking at promoting that's that is the first. Uh, really the frontline leadership role in the vast majority of police agencies. Um, oh, yeah. So I, th- I think it's important to to hit on that. What what words of wisdom do you have?
1: Well, I always told my guys that uh, I'll, I'll always have your back, do your job professionally, don't do anything criminally, because I won't back you up. It's <laughs> basically that easy. Uh, fall back on your training, if you think you need more training, I'll set you up for more training. Uh, especially today, don't forget, as soon as you get out of your car, somebody's got a video of something you did. And that's fine, as long as you do your job professionally and properly, those kids never ever have a problem,
0: and I'll be right behind you, taking a watching to six. So just act accordingly. And, and I, I would say that um, simple is best, right? I mean, you, you hey, I'll back you as long as what you're doing is good and, and, and legal and lawful. And, uh, but, uh, you know, you, you go off the rails, that that's a different story, uh, altogether. And I think you, you keep it fairly simple and, uh, and you know, you work well with your team. I mean, I, have been lucky in my career to be a part of really great patrol teams. And it's usually, I would say the foundation of a great patrol team is a great patrol sergeant. Um, and, right. Start Right, exactly. I mean, there's,
1: for example, I always, took, I always took care of my guys on the ship. A lot of times, we have, we're on a, on a fatal crash or a murder scene, we're going to be out there for many, many, many hours. I would go to the local pizza place where he gave us free pizza, and I'd bring back pizza for everybody and sodas and
0: feed them while they're standing around on the scene for hours and hours. So they loved me for that. Yeah, I well, and it's funny you mention that because as you say that, I remember back, I, I my first. Like my first full calendar year as a police officer, I was working graves, ended up uh, on, a, on a homicide scene, you know, doing the whole like, hey, I got to stand on the staircase and not let anybody up there type of thing. Yeah. And a, uh, a patrol sergeant came around. It was like 1130 in the morning. I was supposed to have been long asleep by then. Um, yeah. Patrol sergeant comes around with breakfast burritos. And to this day, I mean, here we are with four or five years later, uh, I still when I see him. Still, thank him for that breakfast burrito, and it's that's still a memory. That such a simple act of, uh, you know, hey, I'm just trying to take care of the guys that are out there. That is a key, uh, a, a key tenet of leadership, right? Take care of your guys, and they'll and and take care of you, type of thing.
1: I even did that when we had uh, Hurricane Andrew hit down here in '92. Uh, our fuel force unit had to go down to Miami and work down there for about six weeks, and they were totally devastated down there. And part of, the go- part of the job of my guys was traffic control because there was no, no electricity, no traffic light. So they had to stand on these corners at 100-degree heat in August, sweating their you-know-what off. And I'm driving around in a in a marked patrol car with a Miami-Dade officer in air conditioning. So I felt bad for these guys who were able to pull over, and I would swap out with them and say, listen, get the AC going, take a half hour, chill out in the car. And then I, I would do that to all my guys on, you know, wherever I found them walking, doing the uh, traffic control. You can't
0: keep them out there for eight, 10 hours in a hundred degree heat. It's not going to work. No, no. hundred degree heat. Well, and and I'm spoiled. The heat that I uh, that I operate in, there's no humidity to it. Out in in South Florida in August, uh, yeah, that, that is not anything that I ever want to experience. Oh, it's horrible down here in the summer. <laughs> that does not sound uh, pleasant. I, I may have like one hundred and eighteen to one hundred and twenty degree days, but I don't have yeah. I don't have hurricanes and one hundred percent humidity, uh, or or alligators uh, to go on top of all that. So <laughs>
1: oh, in Guano, cold. Like
0: this one I went out to work, it was thirty nine degrees which seems strange to me that Florida gets down to 39 <laughs> degrees. I know it does, but it's just a very odd, a very odd, uh, concept. Uh, now
1: Glenn,
0: well, okay. I've never faced off against an iguana either. I'm going to add that onto my list of, uh, animals not to screw with. Um, but, uh, also in your time, uh, with the sheriff's office, you did spend, uh, I believe it was over a decade, correct? As a, as a hostage negotiator, uh, Tell us a little bit yeah. more about, about your time as a, as a negotiator.
1: Okay. Well, I saw the opening pop up. Uh, they wanted negotiators uh, they were looking for. So I applied for it. I tested for it. And eventually, I got selected for it. And um, after the training, uh, I used to go out with the, with the lead negotiator, and he would kind of watch us do what they do. And then eventually, I would get the call with my partner, and we go out on a call, whatever the call might be at that time. It could be a hostage call, it could be a barricaded subject, it could be a suicide subject, you name it, it could be whatever. And uh, I stayed on that team for 13 years, and I became the lead negotiator after a while
0: because I used to go on all the calls. And what, what are some of the the challenges? I mean, I think that for, for people who, who might be listening, that they're only understanding of a hostage negotiator is what they see in the movies how is it how is it similar how is it different uh what what is it like to be in that role of talking to somebody who has for whatever reason made a decision that they're they're at the end of their rope they're going to hold court right there right then uh you know there's there's no other option but you know then in comes the negotiator to hopefully resolve the situation without any added violence yeah. You know, resolve it or not resolve it.
1: Actually, it's up to the person to resolve it, not the negotiator. They'll have to make that first move. Um, but it's uh, at times it was, it was very hectic. I mean, at times I would talk to an empty building for two hours uh, until the SWAT team decides to make an entry and find that there's nobody there. Or somebody who's uh, barricaded, suicide barricade suspect uh, armed with a handgun. Uh, it, it would be nice if it, was like, if it was like in the movies, but it's not. It's totally, totally different. You can be on the scene for you know many, many, many hours and not get the outcome you want. The guy would commit suicide or be a suicide by cop. Uh, but it's up to that person. That person makes the decision what they want to do. They can come out or they cannot come out. If they don't want to come out, then we
0: go in. And if we go in, there's only one outcome at that point. Right, right. Well, and and I I have to imagine that that uh, in and of itself might uh, might take a toll on on the negotiator. Um, Were there were there times where you just, you know, you kind of throw up your hands and, you know, what the hell? Like, why is this? Were there were there those those like high emotion times or did you keep pretty even keel? (laughs) Well, they always kept
1: an even keel. Uh, you always had to keep your composure and not show any outward, you know, aggression towards the person. Uh, but there was, you know, several times where you had the guy ready to come out. You think he's coming out. And then next thing you know, he commits suicide and it was kind of, you kind of upsetting because I thought I had this guy where I wanted him, you know, and with the mindset and he decided now the easier way is to just do him, do himself. So there was things like that. And um just to give, just bring out one example, uh, I was on this call where this guy took these two women hostage, tied them up in a bedroom, held them at night point. and uh, the woman the lady of the house that owned the house, her husband was trying to get a hold of her so he couldn't get a hold of her. so he calls the sheriff's office to do a uh, a check on the house, a welfare check. So the deputy responds to the house, he's walking around, he looks at one of the windows sees these two women tied up. And a guy walking around with a big knife behind him. So that initiated a SWAT call. So I get called by partner, the SWAT team. And after a while, we set up on it and we were able to get a phone call to him. I'm talking to him for about two hours. I was finally able to get him to let let out one of the women. And when the woman comes out, we bring her over to us for debriefing. It turned out it was my son's pediatrician. Oh, there's a small world for you. No, you're not kidding and then the lady, the other lady was being held was the housekeeper. So meanwhile, two SWAT guys walked, you know, snuck over to the window where they can see in and the rest of the team was at the front door. was so the SWAT commander just telling me, keep him talking. We're going to make an entry into the house. I said, okay. So just when I started to talk to the guy again, all this, all of a sudden, all this gunfire starts and the two SWAT guys apparently saw the guy make a move with the knife and they shot him through the window. I think they fired at him like 50 or 60 times until they killed him. And then the SWAT team got finally got in the front door, rescued the woman who was unhurt.
0: Well, so the, the, the resolution, I mean, you, the, the hostages were, were saved ultimately, but, uh, but you know, for, for uh, whatever those SWAT guys saw uh, and which led them to, uh, to take the action that they did, I, I, you know, it's it's unfortunate that it gets to that point, but I uh, I would say yeah. that uh, you know just as as you said, I mean you, you hit hit the nail on the head. That the the outcome is ultimately up to the individual you're communicating with. That the decisions that they made led everybody involved in that situation to be involved in that situation. Uh, so the right. the choices are ultimately theirs. And I think there's something to be said for uh, you know accountability because there are people who might hear a story like that and say oh well the cops didn't do this and the cops didn't do that no 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 let's let's get back to the root of the problem here that guy decided to take two women hostage with a knife that was that right. was that was decision a um, and then everything that followed you know the the various doors that were opened in in that hallway there type of thing so uh, uh yeah the last thing the cops want to do is pull the trigger it's the last thing they ever want to do right right. Well, and, and your your role as a hostage negotiator, is that um, the agency that you were at? I, I know that as my own agency, that's not a full-time position. So is that something that you were doing in conjunction with your time on patrol? Yeah, so we get
1: called. Back then we had pagers. We didn't have cell phones. So we get, a, we get like a group page uh, that does a call. Up. We have to call dispatch. What's the problem? What's the location? And then we would respond. So I would leave my shift. And head out, or if I'm home sleeping, I would leave my
0: bed and get out. Uh, it was like that all. It seemed like it was like all week. <laughs> and what uh, you know, I as a family man, I I uh, I like kind of dive it into the uh, dynamics of being a police officer. Uh, were you uh, were, were you married at the time? Do you have kids? Uh, you know what what's it like to. Uh, I'm on call now. So, I mean, even I, I can speak to getting called out in the middle of the night, but uh, uh, different world uh, back then. As you said, you operated off of pagers. Meanwhile, I get I get called out in the middle of the night. And if my wife at three o'clock in the morning is trying to get a hold of me, all she has to do is, is send me a text message. But, you know, to talk a little bit about the impact that uh, that that life has on on just us being, you know, trying to be home with our our uh, our families
1: yeah well, I get you know it, other than if I was at work, it'd be a different issue because my wife knew I was at work. Uh, but then if she would call me, uh, I would have to get to our big you know big gigantic phone we had to carry around, and uh, I would get a call from dispatch say you know you got a call from your forty two your wife you need to call her. I would call her real quick, and I'd go, what's up i'm on a, I'm busy on a hostage call and I'll call you later or if it's early in the morning, I'm sleeping, I would kind of try to get up out of bed quietly if she wakes up. I go. I got a call out. I got to go um, go into Fort Lauderdale or wherever I'm going that day, and I'll call you later. So you won't be able to call me and be out of contact with you. So it was like it was like that. It was understanding. It was, it was, a, it was
0: a job, and she understood it. It was really not a big problem. I uh, I had a, my DUI week FTO my so my my uh, like traffic week FTO where I was just handling uh, all the drunk driver investigations. My uh, new cop, my wife had never experienced anything like that before, and uh, she'd be texting me. And if I didn't answer, she'd, she'd text and call and text and call. And I, you know, I'm in the middle of trying to explain to somebody, uh, how to walk in a straight line. <laughs> Finally, my FTO, he gets, uh, gets into the back of his, of his Tahoe and gets this like cell phone mount and sticks it to the window and just put your phone in there. When your wife texts you, you need to text her back immediately that you're busy. Cause we can't keep getting all these phone calls. <laughs> right.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Uh, my wife would call
1: me out of reasons. I just, I'm on a murder scene right now. I can't call you. I'll call you back. Bye.
0: <laughs> yeah. And well, and luckily now, I, as a as a detective now, my wife, uh, my wife's good as gold, man. She, she gets the score and it's, you know, 3 a.m. Call out. Hey, got to go to work. All right. Well, I'll see you when you get home. All right. So it does. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it'll, it, you know, we get there. Uh, we'll, we get there in the end. Uh, but yeah. in and amongst all this, you're a patrol sergeant. You're handling hostage negotiations, but that's not all you also handled narcotics interdiction. Just uh, you didn't have enough going on, so you thought, "Oh, I'll just sprinkle some narcotics interdiction on top of it." Tell us about your time doing doing uh, interdiction work.
1: Okay. Well, um, the uh, when I was with the city of, with the city of Damien, I was this was before the sheriff's office. Uh, the uh, The city, the the sheriff, of the county was expanding his organized crime unit. So he was going to the cities looking for people. They would be deputized as deputy sheriffs, and they would be assigned to the organized crime unit and to his uh, narcotics and addiction, which we did at the airport and the bus terminal. So again, I raised my hand and I go, "This I like to do. It sounds like a lot of fun." So I get I get my gold star, turn in my silver badge for a while, and I got deputized and I worked with the sheriff's office for almost a
0: year, doing drug and addiction at the airport. And it was under the organized crime unit and was uh thinking back to the time and forgive my uh my sort of naivete but the time frame are we talking uh late 80s early 90s
1: yes late 80s uh, a lot of stuff going on through the airports um, the security was fairly lax back then even though they still had the x-ray machine uh but if it's still not like it is today, you don't hear no TSA, that kind of thing. Right. Um, We've got a lot of uh, work a lot with DEA and customs, uh, stopping kilos going out of the city, big money coming into the city. Uh, we would get calls from uh, customs or DEA in New York, hey, we got a guy on an airplane. Let's say on a Delta flight, he's carrying about 150000 in cash on him. Uh, you might want to talk to him when he gets there. And then we would stop him and identify ourselves. We're all plain clothes. And we say, you know, with the sheriff's office, um, you know, where are you, where are you going? What are you doing? Uh, we understand you have a lot of cash on you. Uh, so they would go, well, I'm going to buy a boat. I said, we know you're down here to buy dope. So we would seize the money, give them a receipt for it, and say, listen, if you come back with the good explanation, as so the way you got all this money. You get it back. So a lot of times they never came, they never came back for the money because they know that it was drug money. Or we would stop people coming in. We would see them check in at the airport. Check a bag at the counter, walk away, and we would stop them and, and identify ourselves. that's the word, "We're narcotics officers." Um, where are you heading? Do you have a ticket? Let me see your ID. And uh, we would do, we would do a uh, profiling, and it would ask him, "Do you have any bags checked?" "Oh no, I don't have any bags checked." "You know, I just saw the guy check a bag at the counter." "Yeah, we just just watched you check a bag." "Come on." <laughs> so I'd run over, get her off the conveyor belt, walk over to him, and go, "This isn't your bag." "Oh no, it's not my bag." okay so that was to abandoned property i can open it up without a warrant So you open it up and what's inside you guys wallet and a couple of
0: kilos of cocaine and
1: and
0: well and in doing that interdiction work i mean you you think about florida in the late 80s early 90s as this uh, it, it, was a
1: cocaine hub it,
0: it was the cocaine hub of the united states i mean you had the 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 mall shootout there and was it nineteen seventy nine I mean what you're doing pretty dangerous work against pretty dangerous people. Oh yeah, yeah we would
1: uh, you know we would interdict these guys at the airport or at the bus terminal the same thing. Uh, we would see people walking on we would stop them and did the same routine check their bag, come to find actually one of our cases on the bus made it to the Supreme Court because it got overturned. So it's a, it was our case. that went to the Supreme Court. It was pretty interesting.
0: And were, um, were you required to go to the Supreme Court as well, or, or did somebody handle that for you? The, the, the attorney did all that stuff. Okay, mm-hmm. I got you. I, uh, but it was
1: an interesting case. It changed the, changed the case law on how we did things
0: on the bus. When, and what was it uh, specifically about, about the bus that, that made it uh, a unique you know, case that went all the way to the Supreme Court?
1: Well, we went, we, uh, we stopped this, we walked on the bus, and you know, on those uh, those um, long distance buses, there's only one little aisle, and there's like two seats on each side, uh, and there's a bathroom in the back of the bus. Uh, so we walk on the bus, and we confront somebody, we confronted this one person, and uh, we saw him put his bag on top of the uh, the luggage rack, and the same routine we did in the airport, you know, we're narcotics officers, His our ID, you have any bags? No. Okay, this isn't your bag. But meanwhile, the problem was that we were blocking his access to get off the bus, so he felt it was a custodial hold on him. He wasn't free to leave. Oh, I gotcha. So, so his attorney said, that, "Well, he, they blocked his access. What, what you know, he wanted to leave, right?" So that's what made it to the Supreme Court because we blocked his access off the bus. So we arrested him, took the drugs, and then eventually went through the through the through the case the case filing. And the guy who took it to the Supreme Court and won.
0: He didn't get back his dope, though. <laughs> yeah. You you can't have this back, sir. That's not how this works. <laughs> I have to imagine if he even had that thought, if he, if there was a brief moment where he got, Oh, cool, I can get I can get my my drugs back. <laughs> yeah, but now to, these people have to face the people that they lost it from. You know? Which at that point, I think I'd rather go to prison. If I'm being completely honest, <laughs> so, let's see: go to prison or face the uh, you know the Colombians or whoever and tell them that I lost their coke. I,
1: yeah.
0: hmm, tough, tough yeah. equation there. Um, when when did you uh, when did you leave law enforcement? When did you retire? I retired in in 2009 in August, and I did
1: my 25 years, and I retired. And, um, and remember I had five years in the army
0: military police before that. So
1: I 30 years from law enforcement that was
0: enough. Yeah. Yeah. I think you, you put your time in, um, and August, 2009. Uh, I mean, I'd, I'd like you to, to talk to now our, our soon to be retired folks or, or, you know, even me, what, what does it look like? I mean, how did, how did you feel walking away after 20, 12, 30 years, you know, did you, did you sit there in the parking lot and think, Oh shit. Should I go back? Or, or were you like, Nope, I'm good. I'm done. I'm going to go down to Boca Raton and hang out on the beach.
1: Yeah, I wish.
0: <laughs>
1: uh, the, the feeling turning everything in, uh, you know, I, I really, I really missed my car because we had to take, you know, we had take home cars. Uh, Cause you know, I drove the car everywhere. I, you know, I never had to pay for gas or maintenance or tires or nothing like that. And it was nice to get, get great parking spots, but once I had to turn that in? It was like, Oh, this is it. Huh? So I did, and uh, you know, I went home, and I just thought about it. I said, where did the 25 years go? I mean, time just flew by so fast. And tried to look back at all the things I tried to accomplish over the years and got involved in, and all the unfortunate um, funerals I had to go to of cops I worked with that were killed on line of duty or injured badly, and how i come out unscathed, basically, almost. <laughs> okay. um, and then uh, I didn't do anything for for a few months i couldn't just sit around and look at the four walls so i got on with a federal security company uh, flying with customs enforcement doing deportation flights so every day we flew to a different country with a bunch of plane loads full of illegals taking them back home
0: well and, and what was that i mean were you flying commercial or are you flying like a cargo aircraft uh how, how'd that all end up working out
1: well, It was a law enforcement a federal law enforcement flight with chartered airlines um that you know we would stay out on the tarmac and it wouldn't go through a terminal or anything like that and we would pick up you know uh, 100 110 of these guys and handcuff them and shackle them and belly chain them put them on the airplane and go to their home country for the day and come back home so i did that for about two years
0: uh were there any uh any con air moments or was it fairly uh you know we're gonna be all right let's just get these dudes dropped off and head back to the states.
1: Well, it was kind of like Con Air, except they didn't have cages in the in the in the airplane. Everybody was hand belly and shackled. Um, there was uh, like I think we had like thirteen or fifteen guards on the plane, one ice agent, um, the regular flight crew, and uh, a, a flight medic and a mechanic. And uh, you know they got they put them on the airplane. They sat in their seats, and uh, every once in a while they would mouth off. They just try to get stupid, but they're you know they're handcuffed. Can't do much of anything. Right. Most of them were like five feet tall.
0: And they I'm 6'5. So they're looking up at me, and the other people laughing at me. like, what are you picking on that guy for? (laughs) (laughs) And and were you primarily flying, uh, was it like points south, where is it, you know, Central and South America, or were you ending up over in in Asia, Middle East, Europe? Uh, Mainly, uh, mainly was uh, the triangle of the uh, Guatemala, Honduras, Nicaragua.
1: Okay, uh, Mexico, um, South America, Haiti, um, Jamaica, and then throughout the United States, picking up and dropping off.
0: So it was a lot of flying. And, and then uh, as you're as you're into retirement, uh, and and you've got a couple other, uh, you've got this gig going on. Um, uh, reading the kind of the back cover here of. Uh, of uh, one of your books, you worked as a uh, a guard in in the music entertainment industry, like a like a personal protection guard, right?
1: Yeah, we were a bodyguard in the musical entertainment field. Uh, when the rock and roll stars came here for their shows, we would work with them. Maybe sometimes pick them up at the airport, take them for their soundtracks, staying in the hotel with them for a while, escorting them to and from the stage to the dressing room, and then getting
0: them on their bus to get out of here. Was there was there anybody that uh, that stands out to you as being like your favorite musician or rock group that you worked with?
1: Uh, I think I'd, I'd fall back to probably two of them. Uh, worked with Van Halen. I was with David Lee Roth, the lead singer for two days.
0: Uh, he was a lot of fun to be around. He was a very crazy person, very big into cocaine. <laughs> the um, the I irony of it, work. right? He spent years <laughs> doing narcotics interdiction and now you're hanging out with Van Halen.
1: <laughs> and... Um, and then, uh, we had a, a Billy Joel concert. Uh, he was very nice. He liked all his protection people. And actually, I took my wife to that show at the time and we're sitting in his dressing room and it's like very, very cold in there. So we, my wife goes, man, it's really freezing in here. So he goes, right here, take my, kid home, wear my leather jacket. And, uh, and he, she put it on, she wore it. And then we did the show and we're trying to get him out of there. He goes, I oh, just keep it. And he
0: gets on his bus and he leaves. Well, that's pretty cool that your wife got to keep a jacket that belonged to Billy Joel. How many people get to say that?
1: Yeah, no, I, I wish
0: I knew where it was today, but I moved a few times. <laughs> it's in a box oh, in an attic somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> what uh, ultimately? What was it that led you to uh, to start writing books? What was the catalyst for that?
1: Well, that that dates back many years to when I was working in the rock and roll club as a bouncer. Um, in the early 80s. Um, they were working at this famous rock and roll club called the Agora Ballroom. That's where a lot of up-and-coming uh, music stars that are around today started there. MTV even started in that club. This is back in 82. Um, we had thrown out some people, two girls out of the club. They were being drunk and disorderly. And one of them happens to fall down and get hurt. So when their boyfriends came out, they were screaming, they, they beat us up, they threw us down on the ground, which wasn't true. So one of the guys goes, uh, I'm just going to come back here and kill everybody. So yeah, get we hear that once a week. Get out of here. Well, come the closing time, it's like 3.30 in the morning, um, in my car with my roommate at the time, and we're giving this girl a ride home. She's sitting behind me. Uh, there's about 15 or 18 people milling around in the parking lot, uh, mainly some patrons and some employees. And as I'm starting to back up, on my right to left, there's this car coming by. My roommate goes, hey, here's a car behind you. Don't back up. So I look. And just when I look over my left shoulder, I see a barrel of a rifle sticking out the car, and all of a sudden, all these gunshots. And the guy takes off. So the people are on the ground crying and screaming. My windows got shot out of my car. So I jump out and I go, Get down, somebody's shooting. So the guy takes off out of the parking lot, and people are starting to get up now from the ground, except one of our bouncers. So I run over to him and I, I roll him over, and I see that he got a bullet hole in his back. So I pull him up into. I get on the ground and I pull him up into my lap and I stick my finger in the bullet hole, trying to hold the bleeding back a little bit. It it didn't work. Finally, the medics come and the cops come and uh, they took him to the hospital where he died. So meanwhile, the guys take off down the street about two miles down the road to get into an accident. The local police do the accident report, not knowing that we just evolved into shooting, and they, they leave. So eventually, they get rid of the car, they get rid of the gun, and they both flee the state. So a couple of months later they decide they find out who these guys are through all the witnesses and they brought them the extradited both of them back for trials. So the one guy took them three trials to get convicted, he's getting hung juries. Finally on the third trial, conviction of murder, the second guy the first trial, murder conviction, and they both got sent up to prison in Northern Florida. Then about seven years later, one of the guys gets raped in prison and contracts AIDS. And the family pleads with the governor if he can get him pardoned so he can go die at home, which he gets granted. The other guy, about a year later, escapes the, escapes prison in a laundry truck, and is on the run for over ten years before he gets recaptured and brought back to jail. So I figured that that sounds like a pretty good story. So since I lived it and I was witness to most of it, so years later I was I was mulling around this idea with a friend of mine. He goes, "You know, remember that shooting we worked? Yeah, yeah, yeah." Maybe it would, be, it would make a good movie. So I started writing a screenplay about it. And uh, I finished the screenplay, and I got with a guy in California that writes screenplays, and he helped me format it. And we made it... I had to change the name of the club to make the, called, the club now called The Hurt. I couldn't use the real name. So that's what started me in this crazy writing field. So eventually... I got with this executive producer that I knew and he goes, why don't you have it transformed from script to book and then book to movie? I said, okay, that sounds interesting. So I got with this other lady in California. and She helped me do that, which became the novel called the hurt. Now what's kind of ironic is that the executive producer is the executive producer for the TV show, the amazing race. He was the cameraman with me on the cop show back in the early 80s.
0: No kidding. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: Did uh, did, so did, he, did he remember
0: company. you?
1: Yeah, he did, actually. It was kind of funny. He did. All these years later, and all those hundreds of shows later, I happened to get him on Facebook. And I go, because oh, I, I said, uh, I knew he was producing. So I said, listen, I have this idea. I had this script. Are, would you be willing, maybe interested in producing? I don't know if you remember me or not, but I was with the city of Daniel Police when Cop started the first season. Uh, you rode with us for a couple of weeks. Uh and he goes, uh, oh, yeah, Glenn, I remember you. It was the, the great meat case. And he goes, holy cow, how do you remember that? Of all the shows you've done. And what that was is when he was with the cop show as the cameraman, we were chasing this family around. the just did this huge shoplifting. at one of the local grocery stores. And we're chasing them through the city. And they had two, the, the parents had the two kids with them. And the kids in the backseat, as we were chasing them, they rolled their windows down. They were throwing all this meat at us. So my car was getting pelted with chickens and steaks and pork chops. <laughs> right? until we finally got them stopped and arrested them, right? So this guy, Burt Van Munster, who's the executive producer now of the major race, goes, I remember that. That was the greatest time I ever had. In all my shows, that was one of the greatest episodes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, and that would I be, remember that that. Would be fairly
1: memorable. Doing? It was It was kind of funny. But unfortunately, he said, "I'm very busy with my 30-year anniversary on my show, and I really can't produce anything right now. I'd love to, but I can't." So I'm still trying to get that thing out there to have somebody look at it, and maybe pick it up and make it into something.
0: Well, and so that's that's the hurt, and then you've also got uh, "Look a Quarter," a young boy's pursuit of a dream, and uh, right. uh, what, uh, what that that one is is that one more autobiographical.
1: Yeah, the autobiographical anecdotes about my crazy life, growing up through New York and through the military, through policing, civilian policing, and then to where I am today.
0: And then, uh, what are your what are the titles of your other books? We've got the making of the mon- making of a monster that's coming out. Um, right. Are your books uh, are they are they fiction thrillers? Are they nonfiction? You're telling the stories of what you investigated. Talk us through your titles.
1: Yeah, The Operation 1600 is a political thriller. It's about a corrupt U.S. president who gets us into, gets into a nuclear exchange with Russia. Um, and then the sequel to The Hurt is called The Real Story Behind The Hurt and the Rise and Fall of Extremists. And that's a book that takes place after The Hurt closed down. The owner closed it down. 25 years later, he reopens the club uh, and comes to find out that he's really a domestic terrorist himself. And he hides of the Antifa members and black lives matter members in plain sight. He hasn't working in all the clubs and then they go out and they do their craziness when they're not working.
0: And then, uh, uh, the making of a monster, what, uh, uh, what's, uh, what, 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 what can readers look forward to with that book?
1: Well, that one's going to be this little kid that grew up being bullied from in school and then by his parents. Uh, to the point where he basically couldn't take it any longer. And he wanted to get even with everybody throughout his years growing up, through from, from being a little, like a a young teenager through adulthood. And his only way that he could think of to get even with them is to commit mass murders or bombings or fires. And he goes through his life trying to set scores, set even with all these people, uh, mainly with school kids
0: and college kids that he had problems with until his final demise and that uh uh the making of a monster i mean the the content of that is something that we're seeing fairly frequently it seems nowadays where you've got you've got kids that are uh you you know kind of we talked earlier right is that with your with same with the people that you dealt with with hostage negotiations is for Whatever reason, and and with some of these kids, it's it's the bullying that they go through. But they've made this decision that this is the only option uh, that that they have left, right? Uh, you know, to uh, exact their revenge, or even if it's not exacting re- revenge, it's the only option that they think is available to them. Period. Is to to
1: yeah, uh, they, can, they can do. And I've incorporated a lot of local stories into that story. Because we just recently had the mass shooting here at our city, here in the city of Parkland, where the guy shot and killed uh, 17 kids and injured 17 kids. That was two years ago.
0: Right. Yeah, and it's, it, it's an unfortunate, uh, you know, uh, uh, pa- uh, pandemic, I guess I could say. I mean, we're, no we're, we're encountering, you know, more and more of, of these extremely violent mass uh, you know, uh, mass casualty scenarios. It's something we've, we've fine. I I don't want to say finally, we've been doing it for a few years now, but more and more police agencies are, uh, beginning to, to train, you know, your annual training is concerning mass killer, mass shooting events.
1: Um, down here, I started the, I started the active shooter training down here in the late 80s.
0: Well, and that's—I um, wanted to dive into that as well because you were a tactics instructor for a time. So let's yeah. let's talk about you know the inspiration behind you starting you know a critical training program. Uh, and so in a lot of ways, you were ahead of the curve.
1: Yeah, you know, that and also the DUI checkpoints. Nobody ever heard of them down here until they started doing them. Had to go around the state in, in, in the local areas teaching them how to do DUI checkpoints, which they still do today. But getting back to the, the to the, uh, the the barricaded not barricaded the uh, shootings uh, after hearing about them a little bit you didn't see are any real agencies out there doing that type of training so I got with my one of my SWAT guys on my shift I go listen we're gonna start doing this training uh, we try to make it realistic as possible so we started off doing low key things like uh, I would pick four guys as like the assassination squad. And they would have to go through the office where there's a lot of cubicles and they have to search it out. And I'd have a guy, you know, making noise. I get gunshots in the back and try to find them and, and you have to step over bodies to get to the bad guy. Um, but we did that a few times in certain locations. And then I got with my chief. I go, listen, we need to do a more realistic scenario training. I mean, full blown. And don't tell anybody it's going on other than the people that will be part of it, obviously. And we had to do it. We picked a school in the local area that was on a on a weekend, but there's no school. But we didn't tell anybody else about anything we're doing because this way, they we have to see how they're going to react if, in fact, something really bad goes down around the corner from them. So I got with the SWAT team, and we incorporated uh, the local hospital. Uh, we got a lot of students to help us out. Uh, I had a guy that did a lot of makeup, you know, like the, you know, the blood, the gunshot wound makeup, that kind of stuff. Um... Uh, what you call it? I call had I extra deputies and officers from local precincts around, and uh, I didn't tell any stores that were local near the near the school, and they would just see it as it happened, like real life. and we did it. We got a lot of complaints about it later on <laughs> <laughs> you know? um, but in the long run, it worked out fairly well, right and now you see it's a big deal now you're like doing all this training. You know, back then nobody trained. I mean, even I when I s when I first became sergeant, I told Maggie, Listen, we're gonna do some practical exercise training. I had him stop, you know, pretend there was a guy driving around with a dirty bomb in the car, and you as you approach him on a traffic stop, you see a detonator in his hand. All right, what are you gonna do? You know, they don't I don't know what I've no idea what I'm gonna do. <laughs> so we would teach what to, what to do. We, my SWAT guys were with me through all this training, by the way. And I had actually, for me, I had this guy that was, he was an Egypt background. He spoke Arabic and he was my, my terrorist. <laughs> actually, he looked like one. <laughs> um, so I had a, made up a fake bomb and with a cord and a little plunger. And when the deputy approached him, he would see he's holding the steering wheel and the, and the detonator in his hand. Okay, now what do you do? And the guy's yelling, Allah Akbar, Allah Akbar. And the deputies, they also didn't really know what to do. Do I shoot them and kill them? Do I run away and hide? Uh, do I let them go? You know, there we were a lot of unknowns. So we worked on a, or we worked out all those unknowns. Of course, my SWAT guy would my SWAT guy would say, I would just shoot and put a bullet in his head right there. <laughs> this is a trade to do. But the local guys, you know, the, the average deputy on the road, they have no idea what to do. So we did a lot of that type of training along with
0: other things, traffic stops building searches that kind of stuff
1: well because they don't get that but once you're any once you're out of the academy you don't see it
0: right right well and hopefully i'm i'm lucky enough to work for an agency that is insistent on on uh you know in-service training uh we do it uh quarterly in service training and then they're uh they're generally speaking they're good as gold uh when it comes to to getting officers and detectives into training as long as there's as long as we can pay for it then and and you can justify going than, uh, yeah. then, then, you know, have, have at it type of thing. I, I, I re- I'm a sex crimes detective. I put in for a lock picking class, and my sergeant just stared at me and started blinking and was like, "What the hell? Why do you need to go to a lock picking class?" I don't know. It sounds interesting. Something I've always wanted to learn to do. And he just goes, "No," because <laughs> I couldn't, I couldn't That's quite, uh, couldn't quite justify I put
1: it. it. <laughs> I put
0: I my
1: chief used to say, "You're one of the most trained persons I know in this agency." So I put in for every single class I can get into. They wouldn't let me go to homicide because if you're not a homicide detective, you can't go. That was about the only one I wasn't able to get to. I was going to, I must have been to, like, 50 in-service trainings, got all the local, you know, next nice certificates that I was there. Um, but the, now the sheriff's office has this very big building they just built for for in-service training, all types of, you know, shoot, don't shoot scenarios, um, new firing range for the, gun, the guns. Um and we did a little bit of it also in the in the eighties and the nineties. You know, the sheriff was big on training. But it needs, you need to be more, like, more trained. You can't just train once a year. Right. Uh, doesn't work.
0: Yeah, no, and it's it's perishable. The all of all of our skills. I mean, even just talking to people, right? You get put into a position in the department where you have less and less interaction with people on the street, uh, you know, you're you you're gonna be a little bit rusty if you're ever thrown back into into patrol. So constantly keeping up on that training is uh, of critical importance, and uh, one thing that I hammer on uh, that was that was hammered into me by FTOs is, hey, as you're driving around, you need to be, you know, use that imagination, man. Use use the use that thing between your ears there, and come up with some wild scenarios. And how the hell are you going to respond to it if if the car in front of you somebody pops out with a with a shotgun in their hand because they see a cop behind them? And all right, hey, cool, this is my time to shine. You know, what do you do in that in that type of situation? Are you going to drive? Over the curb and get out. Or are you going to try and engage, um, and just be running through those uh, those scenarios, right? And and hats off to you for having the forethought to do it when not many other agencies were doing it.
1: No, now mostly everybody's doing it, and very often cause I think now they realize that once or twice a year is not really much. When you're you don't have a deal with it, you might not ever deal with it in your whole career, but you need that one that one time. You know when they say it's, uh, you know, your shift is seven hours of boredom followed by one hour of sheer terror.
0: Right. Yeah, and you and and you will right. I mean, you'll go hours and hours. Uh, hell, I mean, even as a as a detective, right, you'll go days without uh, without something going on, and then all of a sudden you're going Mach two with your hair on fire and the world is coming to a screeching halt. Um, That's right. uh, as as we uh, we get towards the end of our time, Glenn, I, I understand there's a very uh, perhaps humorous story about uh, uh, a unique method of transporting somebody who maybe doesn't, uh, doesn't quite fit. Uh, <laughs> tell <laughs> so us about
1: that.
0: about the tow truck?
1: I think I am, yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, we had a guy that was um, causing some problems at our local high li and uh, he must have weighed a good 400 pounds, if not more, and look at him. We had to arrest him. So there's no way we can get him in a car. Even if we use the shoehorn to get him in, it wouldn't work. So I had an idea that maybe if we get him on a, the bed of a truck, because we're only like a block and a half away from the office. So I go, listen, let's get a tow truck and a flatbed, and we'll lower it, and we'll just have him scoot on the end of it, basically, and lift it back up so he's sitting and we'll have somebody ride with them and walk, you know, drive them up the street to the, to the, to the office, which the labels are very close. I do we had to get on that. We should have really got on the highway, it would have been more fun. But, um, and we did. We put them on a the tow truck on a flatbed, took them up about a block and a half, and uh, got them off and had to squeeze them in the door of the office to get them in.
0: Well, hey, I call that problem solving. So, <laughs> I mean, what? You, what? Otherwise, what? You're gonna walk? Like, <laughs> yeah. no. I, I, I had a, guy walk, I had a
1: big guy walk up the street once and try to shoot me. That no, was good enough. <laughs> yeah. Right.
0: Right. Well, and and I wonder how. Uh, I don't. I don't have to wonder much. I, I'm pretty sure I know the answer as to what. What it might look like if if that was tried nowadays? I feel like we'd be all over the news and. Uh, facing all sorts of disciplinary, I'd be. Well, Chief, no one was more surprised than me. So, I, I, I I, happy about it. yeah, I thought I was working outside the box, and uh, apparently, uh, I, I instead was just finding new and creative ways to write policy. So,
1: yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was uh, it was interesting. The bosses didn't like it too much, but they got over it.
0: Well and and I would hope so. Hey, you know, ultimately mission accomplished, right? Nobody got hurt. We got we got the job yeah. done. So.
1: Well, yeah. that's what it's all about, get it
0: done. And then I so we've we've talked about uh, Making of a Monster. You've got one other book coming out, are you able to share the the title of that one? Uh,
1: yeah, that, I think the title right now could change is um, uh, A Boy
0: Genius Becomes a Nuclear Terrorist. And is there a a, a time frame on uh, on when we can expect to see that one?
1: That one in maybe next six months or so, because I'm trying to still put the final touches to it. All right. And um, it takes a while between work and you know, everyone's like, "Hey, I got an idea. Let me plug, them. Let me plug this in that paragraph."
0: <laughs> right. Right. Well, and and if you will, I mean, take take our last few minutes here and and i think you're seeing more and more people starting to uh, more and more law enforcement officers are starting to write books anyhow um, what what advice do you have here you've you've now been a published author of, of several books you've been through the whole gamut of, of writing and editing and publishing um, you know what uh what do you have to say to folks who are maybe just not sure how to start or, or think oh man that's that's kind of a tall order to write a book i don't know if i can do that
1: well, it is a tall order, and you have to be very patient and be willing to do a lot of research, depending on what your topic is going to be. If it's something that, you know, you've lived, that it's very easy to write, because you just write down your thoughts about that that particular incident or the many incidents. If it's something that you're going to just make up and just start writing a book about something, do your research on it, all right? It could be, you know, made-up things. It can be good things. Just make the story flow. Uh you don't have to sit at the computer for six hours, you know, take a break. You know, sometimes you can sometimes get writer's block. You might not do anything for another week before it's on. Hey, I just had a great idea. Let me plug this into it. So it takes time. You can have patience. And then when you're done doing it with the writing, review it. Uh, you'll have to make like numerous changes to it. You'll find all your typos and fix them. And then either self publish it or find a regular publisher. That'll take it for you and then go from there.
0: And uh you did you self-publish or you have a publisher?
1: Yeah, I so I did the self-publishing through a publishing a self-publishing company. It's a lot less expensive doing it that way.
0: Yeah, and and what uh uh wild curiosity, if you're willing to share, I mean, what is the uh what are people expecting to pay to get uh, to get a book written down? I think the the writing part of it, right? You sitting down with your computer, that's that's just that's your that's your time. But, uh, but getting a book to print, I mean, I we can go on, I can go on Amazon <laughs> right now and order probably any of your books, uh, but what, what's it take to get to that point?
1: Uh, well, it, you got to really shop around because a lot of the publishers, they, they run the gamut on pricing and what they offer. You can go from like $350 to 2500 or $3,000 to get it published, depends on what they want to offer. And then when it comes time to, when the book goes to print, it would, maybe the books would cost a hardcover or a cover. Sometimes they're $14 and change. Sometimes they're $19 and change. Depends on the book and how big it is. So you got to shop around because everybody's looking for business and there's always a little negotiating in there. And uh, you'll find somebody.
0: And what was it like uh, the first time you held one of your books in print?
1: Well, it was very exciting because... Uh, it was something that I lived. It was a true crime drama that I lived and relived. And even my friends that bought it, that worked with me in that club at the time, go, boy, you really got this right on the nail. This is great. I loved reading it. It was like I was back there working there again. And they go, yeah, it was a, a little bit of a legacy issue for me you know, to have this done. It was nice.
0: Well, and and as you said, it's a... It's a- a, a lasting legacy, right? The nice thing about books is that, uh, uh, God willing, they'll always be around, right? So even after we're long gone, our uh, yeah, you know, our our grandkids can can read about kind of what what we got up to, shenanigans or uh, or otherwise, you know, serious matters like being in, involved in a, a freaking drive-by shooting uh, and yeah. and and having to lose one of your friends in the in the process. Right. So. Yeah. Well, Glenn, I do greatly appreciate your time. You've uh, you've spent over an hour with me today, uh, kind of talking, really just scratching the surface uh, of your life. <laughs> Where do people go to to find out more about you?
1: Uh, well, I, you, know, you can go to Facebook. I'm not really too big in all the all the uh, social media stuff, but I'm on Facebook, uh, Twitter, the usual ones. And the books can be found at, uh, on uh, Amazon online, or Barnes and Noble, or
0: Kindle and Nook. All right, Amazon, Barnes Noble, Kindle, Nook—kind of your your major players in in the book world uh, makes makes it easy to uh, to get a hold of them there. Um, and uh, uh, you've got your got uh, yeah, two more books coming out this year, which we look forward uh, to those as well. Before we before we sign off, Glenn, um, you've got a microphone to the world. I've got listeners all around the planet. What does the world need to hear from Glenn Topping?
1: Oh boy. That's a good question. <laughs> um, well, listen, uh, for those of you who are in law enforcement, uh, remember it's a noble job. You're doing a great service to your communities. You got to stay safe. Don't worry about what the government is doing. Don't worry about what your local politicians are doing. You do your job, do it professionally, go home safe to you, to your families. And when you retire, enjoy your pe- your pension, do something with your life. After you retire, don't sit around and get old. Stay active and enjoy your life.
0: I like that. I like that, that don't sit around and get old. I've got a, uh, a cousin in England. He's like a, a second cousin, uh, in his, uh, think he's in his mid sixties. And, uh, when I had my son in, in London back in November, uh, with, uh, with my dad, uh, our, uh, our cousin John said, hey, my my sage words of wisdom are don't let the old man in and you'll be all right. Uh, so I, I always like hearing, hearing different iterations of that. Uh, well, Glenn, I, I will uh, I will sign us off. I'll have you stay on the line for me if you would be so kind. And thank you again so much for coming on the Modern Cop podcast. If you want to come on the show, send me an email, blue line millennial at gmail.com. You can reach me. Uh, that way, uh, through Instagram, uh, via direct message, uh, or there is a, uh, the way that Glenn got a hold of me initially is through a contact card on, uh, on the website, themoderncop.com. Uh, with that, everybody, thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Stay safe. I'll see you on the road.